And we are live with our hundred and second. Oh God, one episode one hundred two. How would you say that? One hundred and second episode. Episode one hundred two. Yeah, hundred and second. Hey. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, we're live with our one hundred and second episode of Absolute Absec. I'm Ken Johnson at CK Tricky on Twitter. Join me, my co-host Seth Law at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Hey everybody! Uh, welcome once again. Uh, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about today. Uh, the news over the last week has been pretty interesting on the security side of things. I mean, it's been interesting on the world side of things too. But I think we've beaten that to a you know to a bloody pulp at this point because there's no. Yeah, I, I don't know what else to, to say about it besides hey, it's Tuesday, and apparently it's Tuesday because I I just can't figure out what day it is anymore. Um, yeah, but there's been a lot going on. Uh, if you missed it, all the forward cloud sec stuff was yesterday. Um, I listened to quite a few of those talks as I could. A lot of good info. Uh, way to go, Scott Piper, on putting that together because it was very relevant to, I mean, to the security industry in general, but it did feel um, like a new... I, I, like it was a conference. I, I know we've talked about it for a couple of weeks about conferences, like being virtual. It's really hard to kind of get up and engaged with them. But I felt like they did a really good job the way they moderated it, the way they had like basically an MC that was stepping in every time and pulling in quotes and uh, comments from Slack and the other channels that were there, the Twitch stream. It just all seemed to go off really well, um, all things considered. And I mean, it's funny, like noticing those sorts of things now, because uh, three months ago, right, just the fact that it would have been virtual and there was a stream anywhere would have been cool. And now you're getting and now at least I am. I'm getting more picky. I don't know about you, Ken, um, but like the engagement and how that actually works, it felt like a, it, it felt very well done, I guess is all I was trying to say. Oh, nice. Yeah. I hadn't got a chance to check it out, unfortunately, yesterday. I was pretty, pretty swamped, but uh, yeah. Something I will go back and look at. Um, yeah, it's just a busy yeah. time. Yeah, it is. Um, and I know uh, people are, have been asking about Midsummer Night's Con. Uh, we have a couple of dates that we're floating by speakers right now just to make sure we can get everybody on board. That's what happened last time is we had people lined up and then had, you know, what, 25% of them bail at the last minute. So we understand how it is right now, so we'll 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 get that out once we know where it's at. Yeah, that's not that's that's just to do with the the current landscape we're all dealing with. So yeah, yeah, it's not anything. It's just yeah, it's just a side effect of trying to schedule things during a pandemic. So <laughs> yep, and, I, and not knowing what what things look like in two weeks, much less you know a month out. Yeah. So. Um, Let's see what else has been going on. Uh, Black Hat, uh, please register if you're interested in next level bug hunting code edition. Uh, Ken and I are will be running one session. I believe it's August 3rd and 4th uh, with a code review session for red teamers, basically for people that are explicitly looking to exploit bugs, um, coming at, at it from a an offensive perspective uh, as opposed to a def defensive perspective. Um, so we'll show the tips and tricks that we use, especially when we're doing some sort of a, a dynamic assessment um, or a, 
I like to call it kind of gray box or hybrid assessment where we have the code and how we actually find the vulnerabilities and exploit them uh, you know, back to back. Uh, we'll be reviewing a lot of open source projects in that one um, from an offensive perspective to see also what, what else we can find. Uh, so it should be a good, it'll be a good time. Um, please consider us if you are so interested. Um, I think that covers conferences. Is there anything else? I mean, I, I, I know we got picked up for like black or, you know, OWASP San Francisco or AppSec San Francisco, whatever, global AppSec day, whatever they call it now, right? Like I can't even remember anymore. OWASP's conference in San Francisco in November, I guess, October, November, but I kind of doubt that one's going to happen as well. Um, just given the current landscape and the way things are going. Yeah, so there is one other one I'm putting in here is the oh yeah the, the stat well I put in the tweet, uh, <laughs> but it's uh it's hold on let me uh, let me get the uh, RSVP link here or is it RSVP yeah here we go um, yeah I'm gonna give it a, a, another link for this here shortly there we go sorry this is the one I meant to do. So this is a meetup for the, we're basically going to take and do a live review. Um, yeah. So it should be fun. We're going to just try and apply our methodology. Um, you know, briefly walk through the methodology as we're, as we're doing it live with uh, against an application, see what we can get done in an hour. I think part of the point here that we want to show people is with a system, how quickly, um, with, a, with a methodical system, how quickly you can get through uh, just even understanding the app to identifying risks and vulnerabilities, just like actually doing the code review. So um, it should be pretty fun, I think. Um, yeah, definitely a little nerve wracking when you do stuff live, but whatever. We've been doing it a long time. It should be fine. Yeah, I, I think we'll be okay, right? Yeah, maybe. If, you know, depends on you know if we decide to add some whiskey or whatever to it as well, because uh, that could make <laughs> it more interesting or less depending on you know your 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 choice, right? Like. Yeah, um, it is like middle of the day on a Sunday or something. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We don't even have a project picked out for that as far as what yeah. we're going to do. Like, I think we're leaving it pretty much until uh, day of or a couple days before. So we don't have any like we're going to go into it very blind. So very true to life. And here's a code base. Where do you go? Right. Um, I, I, I am fairly certain we'll pick a, a language we are somewhat familiar with just so we don't have to jump into, hey, you know, now we have to figure out how closure works or something like that. So, yeah, um, maybe we'll uh, ask for suggestions on our Slack channel or something of what yeah. to review. Yeah, I think it'd be a good idea. Um, you know, so if you have any ideas, um, any open source projects that are near and dear to your heart that you want us to analyze, uh, something along the lines of, I guess, Node, Go, Ruby, ah, there's what, yeah, throw us whatever and we'll take a look at it to see if it, it fits the, the profile for this one. Now, now, after last week, somebody's going to oh, be. Oh, it can't be, can't be Ruby, and, right? Like, what was it, Ken? Something about worst and Ruby, right? Oh, I, can't, I can't remember. So that, that got posted at the, at, at the time that I had started on that, that little rant. It got like that. <laughs> YouTube link with that time got posted in my my work Slack, so I was like, <laughs> "Guess we'll see what happens." Now people take that, but uh, no, I it's I, honestly a lot of people share the same opinion, so it's not that yeah like, unique or 
crazy in any sense. So no, and I always go back to this, right? Like co- code review specifically, right? There, there's a reason why we put forth the framework to actually do it because it's damn hard, right? It's not an easy process in and of itself. And certain languages lend to easy uh, easy review of functionality and Ruby's just not one of those, right? So if, you know, it just, the, the way that metaprogramming works makes it more difficult to figure out what's going on, especially when you're not in it on a daily basis. Like it's, most right. languages are like that though, right? Uh, like if I'm, if I'm building, say, Hacker Tracker, right, on a daily basis, and I'm into Swift code, it's a lot easier for me to analyze iOS because I'm in that mindset. I'm in the mindset set of, okay, this is how Swift works. This is how the iOS platform works. Um, how Apple has implemented these different libraries. Uh, it, it's just an easier process. Um, it takes a little bit more to come up to speed on anything, and then Ruby is another extension on top of that because of the way it works. Um, so like it's a, it's an advantage for programmers on some level as well. Like if you enjoy the metaprogramming and how that how that goes about, um, it's great, right? For functionality and actually fast prototyping, all that kind of jazz. Uh, but for code review, especially looking for security vulnerabilities, can make make things complex. So, yeah, you know, and you know, what's interesting is I actually thought, no, yeah, on the note of it though, I thought. I actually thought um, Elixir was going to be bigger than it turned out to be and that it was going to be adopted more widely by uh, Rubyus than it than it ended up being. I mean, people use it, but not like I thought. I thought it was going to be like the next big thing. Um, I mean, I guess when you look at languages, it, t- it does take time uh, to really become popular. But it um, seems like more folks from Rubyland are switching over to like Node and Go. And um, yeah. Yeah, those seem to be the, but a lot of go. So yeah, that seems to be where the trend is going anecdotally, if that helps anyone. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. I wonder, um, I don't know. Uh, like I know we don't have necessarily a, there's PYPL popularity of programming language index. Oh, right. Uh, and I, I, I always, I, I mean, I always like to pull that up, right? Because Ruby's in there, but it is like it has fallen quite a bit, right? In comparison, Go has come up, Kotlin, and Python still it still shows as number one. I don't know if I necessarily. I don't know. I like I need wow. to look at how well that what that research actually comes from. If that's just like they're scanning GitHub projects. It's kind of weird looking at it because like TypeScript is not the same as say like the same categories as something like, um, I don't know, pick something, Objective-C or Python, right? Like it's, I typically see TypeScript used in like templating. Am I wrong on that? Is TypeScript used for more than that? It probably is. I'm just missing something. Well, TypeScript is just strongly typed JavaScript, right? Right, right, exactly. Which is, but primarily, I see it used in templating. Like, I don't even know. I'm sure you can. Oh, no, no, can, no. Like, yeah, it can. It can be used as a full blown language, right? Because um, it, because it, um, it's JavaScript. Yeah, it's JavaScript. It can be like the JavaScript compilers can compile TypeScript, 
It's just basically JavaScript that is strongly typed. Oh, I've seen this more. No, I take that back. I'm sorry. I, no, I have actually seen this used for more than templating. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I've reviewed an app that consisted of all TypeScript. So, yeah. Yeah. I, and I see, and I, I see TypeScripts along the same lines of Go, right? Like the popularity, mm -hmm. uh, because it takes away that kind of freeform JavaScript that is loosely typed and everything's kind of vague to, you must do it this one way. And so it's a lot easier to pass around. Um, so I've seen it in startups specifically. They, they seem to be falling towards TypeScript. So uh, as opposed to just gen generic JavaScript for Node.js, right? Um, What's Dart? Yeah. I've never even heard of Dart, but it's got like four arrows. It's on the rise. <laughs> Where, where's where's Stephanie? Oh, I should probably give a link, by the way. Yeah, I know, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Curious now. Um, Dart's been around for a long time. Really? I mean, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, yep. Look at me. I suck. I don't know anything. Someone's gonna <laughs> clip. Just edit that clip. What I just said. Just edit that into its own clip. Yeah, it's been about ten years. Yeah, uh, it was. It, that's a Google supported language, right? Huh. Um, I remember it's a, yeah, because I remember having discussions about it quite a while ago. Yeah, they're under like 280, 284 stable release, right? Python's C style syntax. One. So it's, I, I think it's similar to Go, right? If I remember right. But how the hell is PHP number five? Uh, WordPress. Two. <laughs> Man. Popularity, yeah. Well, I guess that's true. WordPress, man, no thanks. Yeah, no, uh, C and C++, that makes sense. Um, this isn't uh, like, this isn't based off like happiness it provides developers clearly. It's just based off of like its usage. No, no, so if you look at the left, right, the PYPL popularity of programming index is created by analyzing how often language tutorials are searched on Twitter. Ah, right. interesting. So, so the, yes. more of these, yeah. So that makes sense, right? Uh, Python, Java. What we need is a developer uh, happiness index for <laughs> programming languages. Because <laughs> one exists. <laughs> We're all over the board I, today. Honestly, <laughs> honestly, if it honestly if it did, it'd probably be like no code as like top number one spot, maybe top zero spot. We should say. It's computer science, yo. <laughs> computer science, yo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, we're probably all over the place. Whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> Nothing matters anymore. No, I'm kidding. I see a lot of things about happiness indexes. Yeah. That's where we go. But yeah, the, I mean, it's an interesting way to analyze popularity of languages, you know, based on how many people are Googling for tutorials, I, you know, it makes sense. Like they do a lot of things. I, I know they've used that in the past to predict flu seasons, like how bad the flu is going to be because of the number of people that are Googling symptoms, right? So maybe it's just that no one actually studies Python or has Python books. They just do it all online now. So yeah, whatever. <laughs> this is a... Here's a question. <laughs> um, 
That's a good question. That's a good question. It would probably be done in probably done in YAML. <laughs> just a just a YAML red conf, just a config file in YAML. Yeah, I don't know. No idea. Uh, probably some Jekyll thing would probably be what it would be built in if I had to guess because it's just easy. Come on, it, it it's meta. It would be Ruby, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah. where we're at today. Okay. That's where we're at. <laughs> we have like a whole bunch of topics, but this is more interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe we dive into the first one because I don't know if we get past it. The um, TikTok, <laughs> right? Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's probably a good idea to talk about that. Do you want to cover that or should I give a synopsis? I don't have any preference. Oh, uh, either way, right? Like, uh, I don't necessarily have an article up if you want to dig it up, but uh, sure. the, it, the the main issue here is that TikTok, um, okay, so first of all, there's a new version of iOS that's coming out, right? The new version of iOS actually reports on application behavior and what they consider to be dangerous application behavior. Um, and th this goes, uh, you know, in line with you know some of the things that are going on with Android and some analysis that's been done against the TikTok app previously, but after the developers installed this the iOS 14 and TikTok, they noticed that TikTok was caching uh, copy and paste data basically on a regular basis and supposedly sending it off someplace, um, but at the very least, it's catching that copy and paste data when you're in other applications. So there's screenshots out there of somebody in on Instagram or something else. And TikTok keeps popping up like or iOS keeps popping up the notification that TikTok has accessed the paste information, right? Uh, so it's it's attempting to access this data that it should not, you know, number one, have access to. Number two, that you know could potentially contain things like, oh, I don't know, one password, you know, uh, passwords, it could contain anything else that you copy and paste into it. Um, so it's attempting to capture keystrokes along those same lines. Uh, and they're doing all sorts of malicious, well, it, it looks like they're doing malicious things. Now, the issue with TikTok as well is that it's, it is not owned by a, uh, a US company. This is the other fear that people have. It's owned by a Chinese company. Um, so all the data is going to like Alibaba Cloud so it's going off-site, right? And, and most people don't realize what the back end is that's there. Uh, there are a couple of security researchers that have pulled apart the TikTok application to analyze what's going on within it. Um, it sounds like they just barely enabled even HTTPS for all the traffic, uh, but they're encoding some things, sending it across. They're sending it, sending info about the cell phone that's being used, like IMEI. Uh, contact information if they can scrape it. Um, so basically, it's this data collection application that is um, impersonating or representing itself as a social media interaction. And I know it's very popular, but there are um, certain risks that are associated with actually using that application. Uh, Ken, what were your thoughts on it? Oh, um, well, th there's a few other things. So back in January, it was reported, I think it was um, 
like February and March. So January, sorry, it was, I think it was January that it was reported to Apple. And I think originally Apple was like, nah, not a big deal. This was back when TikTok, the first time it was reported, it was stealing data, it was using the Google SDK and they blamed it on just like the natural behavior of that Google SDK. Um, so that became like a big headline for a few minutes and then um, kind of went away, you know, whatever, TikTok's a popular app, a lot of people are using it. Um, and then like this more recent report after them having, um, what, what gets more interesting, I think, is that they had, uh, okay, so <clears throat> the report was now the actual code within TikTok's doing what you said, which is copying and pasting. And the video shows every one to three keystrokes being uh, captured. But I think one point that was brought up um, that's pretty interesting is the ability to access the system-wide clipboard. So if you are a native iOS user, meaning you, you're like everything you have is uh, like an iPhone and a laptop and an iMac, um, when you copy from one computer, when you copy contents from one computer, it goes into a system-wide um, clipboard where you can like, uh, you and I actually talked about this at one point, Seth, back when it first came out, we're like, Ooh, that feels weird and a little sketchy because you, it, it's handy, but it's a little sketchy. So, uh, it, as always convenience breeds, um, you know, maybe some, some things given up. So in this case, if you copy, let's say your bank's password from, you know, one computer and you want to like, I don't know, put it in your phone or something like that. Cool. Like, well, TikTok just was able to, to grab that data is basically what the report was uh, saying. All those things um, put together, you know, it makes it pretty, um, pretty scary. But the thing is, like, I, I think we've talked about this many times, which is, again, people will always, well, mo most more often than not, I should say, not always, it's, it's too polarizing, but most often they will uh, choose basically convenience over privacy any yeah. day of the week. Well, and I, I mean, this is, this is part of the issue, right? Is that the, the I, I mean, I know my kids, like they like to pass around the TikTok um, videos that are going around, right? Um, and it's, it is very By popular the way, with that generation. So I don't mean to make you sound old, but listen to what you just said. <laughs> yeah, I know my kids. <laughs> the TikTok videos. The, TikTok videos. the, TikTok the kids video. are making the TikTok videos. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. The TikTok's yep. popular oh. with the kids, bro. <laughs> it is. It's popular with the kids. So funny. Anyway, sorry. Please yeah. continue. No, that's it. I'm done. That's it. They I'm don't. Did, it. If you tell your daughter and her friends that this is going on, do you think they care? I'm genuinely asking. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I know my daughter and my son would because they they get it all the time from me, right? As yeah. far as, hey, there's a trade-off here. We need to be careful about what we're installing, what we're using, um, yeah. But her friends, no, no, they don't care, right? I'm just the scary guy that that knows how to hack things, right? That's that's what it boils down to. So you don't, you don't mess with, yeah. I think Fortnite does it pretty creatively. Um, and this is actually how I was having that, speaking of like, you know, droning on about security to uninterested younger people. <laughs> I was in the truck with my son. He's, uh, he'll be eight and for, you know, this stuff, but everybody else will be like eight in August. And, uh, 
Fortnite, if you um, enable two-factor authentication, they actually allow you to, well, they unlock some like emotes. You may not know what an emote is, but it's, you know, pretty much like what it sounds like. It's like doing a throwing up the peace sign or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that one. Yeah. Uh, so, well, I mean, I'm only saying you did You might not know because I didn't know until he started playing with what, what all that lingo, what all the lingo was. But anyways, to actually unlock that, plus like involve yourself in some of the additional add-on games, um, they have you, they incentivize you to enable two-factor authentication, which I thought was pretty cool. It actually led to a whole discussion, uh, probably a mostly unwilling discussion on my son's part of me explaining two-factor authentication and why that matters. And then we got into like, he got into like passwords and he's like, well, what I would do is I would do, and he just spouted off some random like five or six digit number as his password. He's like, no one would guess that. And I'm like, well, let's talk about it, you know? And so yeah. we got into all the scenarios and so it ended up being pretty productive, but yeah, I feel like the, it's, it's probably the same as any, anybody else who's like, you know, the son or daughter of a piano player or of an architect, they're probably going to hear about their work, but yeah, that was cool. Like that they, I think that's a cool way to incentivize um, people to enable two-factor authentication. Just give them something for doing that. Yeah. Yeah. For making it. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, rolling into two factor auth, right. For financial data or financial access, anything like that. Right? Like we're, we've been having a discussion, especially as the kids get older and they're like, okay, now I have a bank account. All right. Now we have to talk about this, right. You can't use the same password you used for the last five years at your school, right? Like it's just not, it's just not secure. So um, I don't know at some point, like it feels it almost feels like a, you know, a blog course post or a channel that we need to put together separately. That's just like security for like, I don't want to go back to the dummies concept, but security for people that aren't security people. Right. Um, like the advice that, that yeah. you give to your spouse, your parents, your kids about how to navigate um, because it's difficult. Right. Uh, like when we go, if we go back to TikTok, right. Like India, basically just banned all of these apps that are coming out of China uh, within the last 12 hours, right? Um, including TikTok, but WeChat and a whole bunch of other ones because they're like, hey, this is a way that uh, they feel like it's a way that the Chinese government is gathering data about their citizens. And, um, right. Do you know which how is, they're banning that? Uh, they, they pulled everything out of the app stores, right? So anything like Google Play or I, Apple the app store in India, you can no longer download TikTok. You can no longer download WeChat. Um, I think if you have it installed, you can still use it, but I wonder if they're starting to do some um, traffic restrictions as well. Yeah, that would be like, super interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's yeah. uh, I'm going to look into that because I'm curious on how that all, how you would ban that in more in more than a legal sense you know, without having uh, full control over someone else's device. Yeah. Um, I hear you, you know, I feel like anybody listening to this podcast, we hear that. We're like, mm, pretty sure there's a way around that. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> and if you're not, then you should keep listening to the podcast. <laughs> there's probably yeah. a way around. No, that's interesting though, that they, uh, they banned it. And you said it was because the, that they didn't want um, citizens data being collected and, and whatnot. Yeah, the the quote from the in that article I just posted, maybe post that New York Times article. Um, 
from the industry or India's oh, ministry of tech, yeah, electronics and information tech basically said these Chinese apps are stealing and surreptitious, surreptitiously transmitting users' data in an unauthorized manner to servers which have locations outside India. Um, compilation of these data, it's mining and profiling by elements hostile to national security and defense of India, which in ultimately impinges upon the sovereignty sovereignty and integrity of India is a matter of very deep and immediate concern, which requires emergency measures. Mm. Interesting. And also, you know, what's really funny, by the way, and ironic is that when I click on like, say, a Forbes article, that's like talking about where was stealing data that they make me enable adware to read the <laughs> fucking article about how it steals data. <laughs> yep. So there. What was that emote you used earlier? Hey, Forbes. <laughs> Good thing we're sponsored, right? Um, <laughs> Good thing we don't. We have no <laughs> strings on us. <laughs> so <laughs> we're real boys. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, no. I, yeah. I, so, but this uh, okay. And I know this has been a topic on the podcast previously, right? But. This goes back to the whole idea. Like we, we had that article a couple weeks ago that we talked about when it comes to threat modeling and how when we when we in the industry perform threat models, we don't give nation state actors proper due. Right? And right. I feel like this is in a direct response to that, right? As 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 a nation, India looked at it and did a threat model and said, holy shit, right? Like uh we, we have a border with China. We're in this dispute with them and they're collecting data on all of our citizens. Right. Um, so at some level they decided, Hey, it's not worth it. We're, we're going to cut out that nation state threat actor, at least, you know, this low hanging fruit that we can and move on from there. Um, I don't know. I, but this, this gets really interesting though, as you start to talk about, um, bring your own device like for corporations uh and you know other I, I mean you're talking about the the iCloud copy and paste stuff because you can you know you can suck data out of there too um but anything that a, an organization uses within like kind of this trust boundary that they have with an employee at this point you really have to consider what other applications are on that device because there are ways to get at that data. And I know that a lot of those platforms, a lot of those VPN uh, providers will attempt to, to segregate off the corporate data from you know, the typical device or the device that it's running in because it's considered untrusted. But this makes me wonder, right? How effective is it? Um, is there a possibility there? Because you know, Apple at this point, like they were just, no one knew that this was going on, or if they did, they weren't saying anything about it, uh, which means that there's possibilities there for that sort of leakage to be happening, even if it's unintended, even if the protections are in place. I mean, Apple's a walled garden, Google's pretty open, but there's still a risk that is associated with that and running inside of that BYOD environment. I don't know. I like it. Just seems to spider out, and it's very easy to get tinfoil hatty here um, because of the because of the nature of what's going on. 
Yeah, I, I didn't know. I've even I'd never heard the word techno nationalism as they uh, said. That's that's been a thing in India for a bit now, and they view their like you said their their uh, their citizens' data as a uh, sovereign national asset, um, which is pretty uh, a pretty cool way to. I mean, in my opinion, anyways, it's kind of like uh, that's a cool way to say it to mm-hmm. look at it. Um, yeah, you yeah. Know, it's, yeah, it's uh, it's. I nice mean, here in the U.S., we've always been pretty loosey goosey about like even privacy information, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to the EU and other places in the world. Um, and I, I wonder if it's just because it's never something that has, like, we've never been in a, under an oppressive re- regime that has used that data to, yeah, to do bad things, right? Quote unquote. Um, I don't know. You know, it's funny, man. I've never been to India. I need to put that on the list of places. It should be, uh, it's totally random, but I always wanted to go. Yeah. 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 That's kind of, hopefully when all this travel opens back up, make a trip there. Nope. It's done. Um, (laughs) It's done forever. No more travel. Yeah. Um, We should probably also talk about, the latest happenings with OWASP, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you want to go how far you, I'll, I'll go in as far as you want on this one. But um, yeah, for those who don't know, the executive director position it has gone to Andrew Vanderstock. I think uh, Mike McCann, can't, <clears throat> excuse me, Mike McCammon was, uh, was uh, head for, uh, or, sorry, was the executive director for, I want to say 18 months or two years, something like that. I honestly don't remember, but I know it's not been long at all. And supposedly he was, and, and Mike, like, so we've, uh, you know, I, I, I know Mike and um, he, he, he and I actually uh, dialogued a lot, getting them moved over to pages from the OWASP.org media wiki uh, to, you know, using GitHub pages for uh, the OWASP um, organization um, there was a lot of effort that went into that. It was really good work. Um, having said that, um, I don't really, I don't know. I don't have the inside scoop on why, um, he stepped down, but it sounded like that, that, that was never going to be a permanent position, which I was not aware of. I don't know. I honestly don't know with any of this stuff anymore, but, uh, I think it brought up some interesting, uh, some interesting points about OWASP and um, cause they've, 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 they've switched through leadership in the last few years. Like the first time the uh, original uh, executive director, um, um, trying to, trying to remember all of the scenarios. I think the first executive director passed away if I'm not mistaken. Um, gosh, I don't want to like say stuff that's not true. Uh, uh-huh. I don't, yeah. I don't know if I realized that if I just wasn't as uh, involved at the time that they passed away. I mean, I knew, I, I knew right yeah, before I Mike. Thought so. right? Um, and then, yeah. Yeah. Right. So there's the OWASP has changed hands a few times, basically in that, in that position over the last few years. Um, and so it's, it's been kind of like a, it's getting a little rocky. I think, I, I think, you know, j- I'm just going to be honest. Like, I think it's, you know, 
been a little rocky for those of us who are deeply embedded in the sense that like deeply embedded in AppSec period. And we like, that's OWASP is like, it's like our organization, right? Um, collectively for AppSec, or it has been for a long time, meaning it has a lot of projects for like open source uh, security tooling, um, like cheat sheets, uh, secure coding guides, uh, methodologies like it's been a body of open source work and it's all been collected under there and then for better or worse a lot of those a lot of that work has turned into what is secretly not so secretly behind oh you already posted that okay cool here i'll link to that um yeah so it's been folded into like oh or uh, pci and and various compliance standards as like you know have training on the wasp top 10 or you know whatever like most common vulnerabilities. And so um, OWASP has been entwined and deeply entrenched in AppSec. Most of our conferences, AppSec conferences are held by OWASP. But um, it's, uh, I'm interested to see where it goes with Andrew Vanderstock's uh, leadership. And um, I have like, I'm trying to be optimistic about it for sure. I, I hope though that when he's in that position, he stays there for a while. I yeah. don't think that it's good for the organization to cycle through leadership so frequently at all. And uh, while there were definitely some uh, some good things that came out of OWASP, or there are good things that continue to come out of OWASP, and this is no by no means am I like saying down with OWASP or anything, far from it. Um, what I am saying is that uh, I think the leadership needs, this is my opinion. I think leadership needs to stay in place for a while. I think it needs to become one of the gripes I've heard has become a conference uh, uh, organization. And so I think that there needs to be um, like a reinvigoration of the, the projects that are under the OWASP banner. Um, and then frankly, like there probably needs to be some cleaning of house on the leaders list. I've watched leaders lists on the threads where people say just it's okay to have like uh, civil discussions, but um, some of that stuff is not so civil and I wouldn't really consider it a discussion. And, you know, so I think there needs to be some cleaning of house to, to for sure in some respect. Um, you know, this, I could go on about this forever, but there is new leadership. I think OWASP is at a point where it can go one way or the other. And uh, for me, I'd like to see more of a focus on, um, like the technical projects and uh, you know, less politics, more uh, like work. So, yeah. Yeah. I, like I, you know, from a, from a strict like security, like application security perspective, I do feel like Andrew is a, I, like he's a good choice, you know, because he is coming from an AppSec, from the AppSec side of things. He's done work on the OS top 10. I know like he's, he's pretty well respected. Um, you know, when Michael came into that, it was like, no, I mean, honestly, I didn't know who he was at all. You know, he wasn't in the space. Um, so I think there'll be some advantages to having someone from, from our side of things actually leading up the organization. Um, we'll see how much, yeah, I mean, we could, we'll see how much he can get done. Um, I know there's a lot of split focus on the OSP side of things between, you know, running the foundation and, you know, running the conferences. That's, that's, you know, that's where Michael's focus was a lot of, you know, making sure things were, 
I guess, solvent, right? There's enough money coming in to handle everything and do what they wanted to do. Um, but then you have all the different chapters and the way that the chapters run is pretty, um, it's unique per location, right? Per chapter, it depends on the chapter leaders and what they want to do with it in each of the different locations. Um, and some of them are very tight with OWASP, others are pretty loose. So like it's it's an interesting organization. I don't know if you ever get away from the politics because of how distributed it is and how worldwide it is. Um, that's always going to be a portion of it. Uh, so I don't like I don't I don't envy Andrew stepping into that position. I guess is what I'm saying because uh, I like we'll see how long it lasts. Um, like I hope for the best there. Um, but it's also hard to watch, right? Like when this came out yesterday that Andrew was going to be the new executive director, like there's like four or five different Slack channels that I'm in that just page after page of people having opinions about, hey, what 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 should happen? What is happening? You know, gripes and like positivity, right? It went well back and forth. Um, so I, yeah, I, like I really don't know what's going to happen there, but I know the resources is highly needed. Um, from a focus perspective, uh, having some sort of a place that we can go to that is kind of this authority on application security, we've got to have it. We've got to be able to point at something that is the reference for you know, what it is that we do on a daily basis. So, yeah. Yeah. And by the way, the last executive director before Mike was Karen Staley. Mm -hmm. Staley. I'm not S-T-A-L-E-Y. Um, and I'm trying to remember... And my memory is sucks, but there was a, a executive director before, and I, I'm pretty sure that's who was the one, uh, the person I, I mentioned I thought might have passed away, and that's why there was a, a lapse in, um, or like an effort to, to you know, bring in a new director. But uh, yeah, man, it's like you know, it's an interesting time. And then like, I don't want to get too much into. Well, I'll go as far as you want, Seth, but what I would say is that there were also other changes like with the training, um, how that worked where, you know, they changed the sort of pay structure for trainers. Um, I don't know how other trainers felt. It felt a little weird. It kind of decent incentivized us to want to like pack classes. Cause you don't get paid anymore. Really not much more for like having a larger class. Um, and I guess probably people aren't talking about that and I'm not like, you know, being harsh about it or me. It's just what happened. And, uh, um, like financially, you can't even argue that like financially, it just like the percentage went way down for each additional head. So like you're not being incentivized to have like big training classes as a trainer. So that structure is kind of an experiment. I guess we'll see if that works out long-term. Um, so there's just been like a lot of changes that are just, there's going to be change, like an organization that's been around this long, this big global, um, but yeah, you know, it's to be expected and um, we'll see how that, that all goes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I know Mike, well, yeah. Cause we had conversations with him about it as they were trying, as they were talking about changing that structure. And um, I mean, it's not that they're not paying trainees trainers anymore, but they're taking away the incentive that good trainers are going to want to present their content at OWASP conferences. Right. But that's really what it boils down to. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, I don't know, like, I don't want to go into the, the AppSec days stuff either. Right. Like, cause they, you know, I, 
You mean the virtual yeah. ones over the summer? Yeah, the virtual ones over the summer because it feels like again, you know, the the compensation for the people doing the work is very very low as opposed to the purple the people running a virtual conference, right? Um, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, when we talked about it, I'll I'll you know I'll put it out there. I, I my vote was for you and I to not submit for it for that for that very reason. It was very low. We do this because we want to do it for for fun, and it's not it's not all about the money. However, it does take a bit of time, and so there has to be some value. Like it does take like quite a bit of time to do it right. I mean, you can half ass anything and throw out training, and you know people will not be happy. <laughs> you know, yeah, they'll have paid money, and it might be okay ish. Oh, you know that's not how we run things. We like to put a lot of time into it, so. If we're going to do multiple, uh, my, my vote was, you know, with multiple training sessions over the course of a summer with very little real upside financially. And the main thing too, for you and I, and like, I know for, for me, this is like the biggest thing is like actually meeting people physically in person. So if you say every few weeks, you've got to give training, it's not going to be a great pay and you're not going to get to meet these people in person your students, the people who you're trying to reach out and change their, their life for the better, their work life for the better. You know, what's the, what's the, what's the advantage there? What's the upside? So we, that was my vote to not do it. So. Yeah. No, total, total respect. Those that's not to say they should, they should, um, everybody should do what they want, you know, <laughs> do, do what's best for you. But yeah, that was my my take on it. So for whatever that's worth, yeah. Well, that's anybody. <clears throat> yep, and that's what we ran into, right? Is it's um, with OWASP specifically was kind of okay. You know, what what is the value? Where is it that they fit? And that that's kind of like you've got Black Hat and Defcon, right? Like that run on a yearly basis, and you know, Black Hat's definitely focused on corporate like high value training. Uh, they bring in the best of the best to give those trainings. They fill up those classes. Um, and that that is the focus between that and then the, the conference talks as well. Whereas you've got DEF CON on the other side that's more of, hey, it's more affordable, right? But it's also more geared towards kind of the underground community, at least initially, right? Nowadays, you know, they they blend a little bit, and you know, DefCon has become more corporate. But it's still like DT Jeff tries to run it as this is for the community. This is not necessarily just a you know a conference that is you know built for businesses. Um, and where does OWASP <laughs> fit it fit within that, right? Because on one level, it's, you know, oh, we're trying to make things affordable affordable for people to get into those classes. And I can, I, I totally get that, right? But if that's if that's the play, if that's what they're trying to do, it needs to be very upfront. Um, but then they're, they're still trying to make a ton of money off of it, or like they're still trying to make money off of it enough to support other things. And so it's, it becomes, all right, what what is the point behind all of this, right? Like, what is the objective of the organization? And that's what I'm hoping to see out of the leadership is this is our clear objective. This is where we want to be in the space. This is the value that we provide to the community. And we're going to stick by that. We're not going to change it every year or two years. Um, it is. So I feel like that's where OWASP has kind of lost focus, right? Like we had the whole issue with the OWASP Pop 10 a couple of years, right? The same sort of thing is, 
what is the point behind this? What is it that you're trying to do? Because if it is driven by a couple of companies or if it's driven by like corporate interests, it becomes uh, like a, a sales mechanism almost, right? Yeah. Which is unfortunate, and, and, which is what we don't want it to be. Um, yeah. Because yeah. something you said made me think of uh, like on that note is that because basically what, what you were talking about with, with Black Hat and like the professionals and everything, one thing people complain a lot about is the, the pre, uh, well, not complain a lot, but when I hear complaints, it's never about how well the training went at Black Hat. It's always about the, um, the cost. It was like, well, that was a lot of money, but I didn't pay it. My employer paid it or whatever, but usually it's, it's cost. It's never like quality. And why I say that is I think it's important to point out in fairness to OWASP and in fairness to the decision-making around training. Um, I actually got, you and I got a breakdown financially of what it looked like for one of the conferences last year. I'm not going to point out any specifics or give out any specific information. It was a little bit of a private conversation, but all I'll say is that the way the cost structure broke down when you took away, basically they didn't make any money. They actually kind of lost money. I would even say um, off that conference. And it was uh, a similar deal for like at two or three conferences in a row. So uh, you know, when, when people complain about like black hat, black hats prices and, and not everybody, I'm not saying this happens all the time. I'm just saying like when I do hear something about black hat, it's a usually about cost. It's almost always about cost. Um, I think it's like important to remember that they're, they're, they're that price is so that they can bring like what you said, make it highly professional, ha still have profit to reinvest into other things and like, you know, give good training. So it's a weird situation because nobody wants to pay, you know, too much. Right. But there's the cost of those spaces are insane. Like when I saw the the breakdown of some of these numbers, it was like, how in the world does anyone get away with chart? And, and like, since Neil was watching earlier, I'm not sure if he's still on, um, like, we, like one time he, he, he gave a, a quote on just like what it cost for coffee at Locomoco sec. It's insane. The costs are insane. And the people that run these conferences, this is outside of OWASP now. This is just like people who run conferences in general. They really put a lot of line to, 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 to do those. And I don't know if people appreciate how much goes into it. But uh, anyways, yeah. So new, new leadership in OWASP, hopefully things can be, there can be consistency and they can raise the standards a bit on some of these things. Not, I'm not talking about the, the cost or anything like, or finance or anything. I'm talking about the projects, like the technical projects. That's what I'd really like to see sort of get elevated and, and back in the limelight. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, we're still seeing a whole bunch of activity on projects, right? Like, you know, right. But, but you would like to see more continuity, right? Like more regular updates and, you know, not quite as quite so much split focus on what's the latest and greatest, but um, everything, the, the whole body of content that's there has to be continually updated. Right. Uh, and I know like we've had Brian class on the show before who else with OWASP top 10 and the OWASP SAM project and the amount of work that goes into maintaining some of those is it's borderline a second job at times. Right. And I know you, you know, this as well, like running like the um, rails goat stuff, right. Is it, 
it can take over your life, right? It really can, especially if you're the only contributor there. And so, and, and this is a problem with open source projects in general, right? Is it's it's very hard to find reliable people that will continually um, upgrade and update and continue to to support a project after it becomes stable, right? It it mm. just is, and and life happens. People get busy. Um, but I don't know how how to how to maintain that continuity, and that's what that's something that I would hope OWASP would be able to do, right? Because mm. uh, you, you look at some of the other things that are out there, like the uh, like Google Summer of Code, and the way that they push people into open source projects to keep things going. Um, but there's very few projects that have that level of kind of continuity between developers and contributors. So. Mm. No, yeah, anyway. definitely. That's a hard thing to do is uh, open source in general. In fact, like I've just recently in the last two months started picking back up with Rails Goat and like, you know, getting some pull requests submitted in. I'm still not great about it. But yeah, it's for, for the first couple of years because Ruby on Rails is so hot when when um, I feel like that's going to be a meme. <laughs> you know, for a while, Ruby on Rails is like, so it's like it's like that was like the thing, man. That was awesome. That was that was what everybody was going to, um, and so for me, like that did become a part time job. Actually, I mean, now that you mention it, that was really hard. Um, it took a lot of time, and yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. That's just one small project. There are much larger projects that have been around for much longer that you know get, have multiple contributors, and it's no small effort. So, yeah, yeah, man. I hope consistency. I hope we get a. Uh, somebody who can be the executive director for a while. And because it's like, damn, oh my God, Neil just posted that. Hold on. I'll just put it. There you go. Food and coffee alone was about $800 a head, not including the Lua. Uh, yeah. Uh, that is insane. That is so insane, man. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like that's, that's the, that's the price. And like from a financial risk perspective, you know, that's not fun. And uh, no. and that's the other thing is you have to attract vendors and for vendors to be attracted, there has to be, there has to be a balance. Uh, oh, that was including the, either way, $800 a head. That is, that is a, that's a lot of money. Yeah. It's a steep price. I, I'm, I mean, think about that. Cause how long was loco mocosec or this so-called conference was what, <laughs> you know, alleged conference, <laughs> alleged conference, alleged like location. Yeah. But yeah, for a two, three day conference, like $800 a head for food. Like, I, I mean, I know everybody looks at that and they're like, Oh, well, you know, I like I eat for, you know, 20 bucks a, a meal or whatever it is. That's insane. Right. Uh, that's where conference locations and hotels that host conferences, that's where they make their money. Right. Like it usually on, it's on food. It's on lodging that's associated with it. Um, that they actually uh, they actually make their money, and if you've ever been in in conference organization, it's usually you get a better rate on space based on how much food you buy, based on like the number of people that book in the hotel where the conference is at using the conference rate, right? So like the space will come to you incredibly cheap because you're spending all of your money on these other things, and then you're taking that eight hundred dollar ahead 
and you're spreading that across, okay, there's these sponsors that are giving us so much money. So we have this much to play with. You know, maybe that's not all going directly back to conference attendees um, cost of getting into the conference. Uh, but it's still like, it, it's this weird hard balance to, to figure out. And that's probably not, nothing compared to what Black Hat pays. Like you think about those large banquets that they have and the food that's available there um, and how much that ends up costing you when you're going to the conference or included in the price. Um, I know that like each of those meals that you go to in Vegas is probably costing the conference a couple hundred bucks, right? Like it just, it is. Um, and so it's this, it's this insane kind of industry as it is, <clears throat> but then, man, I like, we, we're all over the board today, Ken, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, trying to run one of those conferences and putting it together, like take this, take into account that the guys that are organizing this, like Nike Neal, they don't know how many people are showing up to this conference when they sign those contracts, right? It is a huge financial risk that you're basically on the hook for because you signed a contract with Marriott or Hilton or whoever for, you know, tens of thousands of dollars that you have to cover some way. Uh, and so you have to get people to the conference, you have to get vendors and you have to get sponsors in, in order to make that happen. And it's a very stressful thing to do. It's not easy. So. Yeah. And we, we appreciate it for any, for anyone who's going through that pain um, mm -hmm. of, of doing that for the community. It's, and yeah, it's I'm like very appreciative of it. Um, and then even more so, I think now that, like we can't go to these conferences it's going to be, you know, really nice to get back out and be in person with people. Um, like really it will, it will be really nice. So uh, yeah. Thank you to you, those folks. Hey, yeah. I wanted to mention one thing, by the way, um, <clears throat> one of our regular viewers remixed, rewrote hunt scanner and uh, for burp and uh, put it into the burps uh, app store. Um, so I just kind of want to, uh, put that out there and kind of, you know, promote it. And I know you found another tool too, that was of interest. Um, I don't know if you wanted to talk to that too real quick since we're starting to run out of time. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it was one that just popped up that I was interested in because, uh, there had, there wasn't really a good, I mean, I know PHP security volume. Um, I can't remember what the other one was called. Um, but there's this new whoops, Psalm scanner that's out there that is doing um, actual uh, source to sync, like taint analysis of uh, PHP uh, that I thought I felt was very interesting, right? Um, did you post that link? Sorry. The Psalm, oh, you know what? F. I did not. Here, let me see. I'll throw it up here. Yeah, sorry. Actually, I think I was confused. I think... I think Caleb wrote the zap proxy. No, no, no. Caleb did write the hunt um, scanner remix stuff. For burp too, not just uh -huh. for zap. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Here's the uh Psalm one. There we go. Um, where's that? Oh, uh there you go. Is that the right link for some? Whoops. Um, yeah, it is. Yep. Okay. Psalm.dev. Um, so it's, it's a PHP 
static code analyzer, right? Um, and, and I know in the past I've been pretty disappointed with the PHP ones, but the way that these guys are going about it feels more kind of code QL-ish or SEML-ish, right? Like they're actually doing source-to-seek tracing, they're building a abstract syntax tree and then identifying the vulnerabilities from there. So it feels like the start of something good in the PHP world, right? Um, and if I remember right, there was it was associated with a larger organization. Um, so it's it, it's basically a sponsored. Ah, crap! Now I can't find my link. Where did it go? Some not dev. They were using it to scan scan. Oh, Vimeo. Yep, it's a Vimeo open source project. So they actually built it to analyze Vimeo source code, and they're open sourcing it. Uh, and yeah, so it feels like there's some real corporate sponsorship behind it to keep it going and getting, you know, keeping it up to date. Um, I know some of the PHP tools that are out there, if you look at static analysis tools, they support older versions or they're not up to date. So this was one that I was I was actually excited at, to see because of how it, how it came about. I was like, all right, somebody's taking this seriously and they've used it to identify vulnerabilities in Vimeo code. Um, and then turning around after they fixed it and putting it out there for the larger community to use. So, yeah. So there's my plug for Psalm, um, static analysis tools in general, uh, right? Like, depending on how they're used, we can get into it because I know I go back and forth on it. Um, everybody's heard me complain about Fortify and AppScan source at some point, right? Just just because of the number of false positives that can come out of those tools but that doesn't mean that there's not a place for them, especially in a CI/CD pipeline, right? If you're trying to put out, push out PHP code, you want to be able to analyze it quickly and find those vulnerabilities. Here's a resource for you. Um, still not gonna do away with some of the other things that we've talked about in the past, like unit testing and you know dynamic assessment and everything else that goes into it, but there is a place for it. So yeah, rant over again, right, you know. <laughs> No, not at all. No, 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 no rant. Um, I just wanted to make sure some of these tools got out. We, we, we mentioned these tools before we uh, kind of, you know, closed it out. I know we had other things to talk about. Is there anything off our list that was like, you just definitely wanted to make sure we, be, well, you know what? Oh man, there's one, sorry. There's one last thing I feel like we, we should just mention is that um, you brought it up, which was, was the gov going and, and putting their, oh, going to the preload. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just innate, like putting .gov site on the preload list so that everything for .gov is HSTS, which is um, to just re re reiterate for anybody that's a little bit more junior, um, uh, HSTS. So um, this is meant to, usually when you make a request off to a website, it'll respond with a, a header and it'll say, hey, I've got a strict transport security enabled. This is, these are the, the options. Um, because there's some configurable like time to live and things like that or max, whatever it was. I can't remember. But anyways, there's like uh, these options that come back and then your browser after that first initial request, maybe it was over HTTP. Once the, once the server says, Hey, no, do this over HSTS. So only HTTPS and never make a request outbound over HTTPS. That way you don't leak like, like let's say the site was served over SSL and, um, 
but there was a, I don't know, an image source off to an HTTP. I think that's the general example we usually give people. Um, your request would go off to that image over HTTP. For that image over HTTP, your cookies would be leaked if they didn't have like a secure prefix or the secure flag set on them, something like that. Anyways, whatever. This preload list, what it does, it's a, it attempts to basically just say like, don't, um, don't even make that first request to then figure out if it's got HSTS. In fact, just know that if it's like a .gov site, just don't send it like, you cannot send requests off over HTTP. So why that's, I think, interesting is that is a large effort. And, and I think that, because uh, one of the article that, that I had read that you had sent over, uh, Seth had mentioned them being like, um, uh, like the government being bloated, which I don't disagree, obviously, but like uh, this is actually not the simplest thing to do for an organization as large as the U.S. government. That is not a small effort, um, surprisingly. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, not so surprisingly, if you've ever tried to enable web security standards on even one website or a handful of websites, let alone all of the government. I see you have three links in here. Um any of these that I need to post, Seth? Um, here, let, let me give you this. This one is the from home.gov.gov. Okay. This is the, the, that management preload list is the actual announcement from the government that, hey, guess what? Basically, anything that is registered after September will be automatically preloaded into the HSTS list. Um, I know they've been rolling other sites in there, right? That was that was the whole point of the article. The initial article that came out was like, oh, look, the government is five years behind. Um, and like, oh, open source, like, you know, tech companies have been doing this for five years. I'm like, yeah, but yeah, the bureaucracy of the government and actually making those sorts of changes on a large scale. Um, this is a this is a fairly large, this is a big announcement, right? Like it, you know, really will help secure things, especially from a, you're dealing with the government perspective and the amount of data that they have. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like the, the amount of various websites being hosted on .gov, it's not a small change. It's a very, there's like, also, you know, you have to remember like, and I don't know what it's like now because I haven't worked in the government for like a decade, but, um, or more actually. I don't know, about a decade. Yeah, and man, it was, very hard to get even small changes um, made. Like when I say, oh God, I'm sorry. I shouldn't make, I should say the change itself was small, but the impact was huge. Like an IDOR, like a SQL injection, like an XSS, something like that, right? So yeah. Imagine you just say, okay, now listen, you got to make sure that you're prepared, that everything you've got can operate well over SSL. And you've thought about all of, all of the potential impact and, you know, all that. So it's not the simplest thing in the world for the governor to go to do that. So no surprise there. Yep. I guess that's the only other thing I wanted to make sure before we hopped off the podcast that we mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, thanks everybody for joining us today. I know we've been all over the board. We are out next week. Um, we won't be, we won't have an episode. Yeah. <laughs> that's all good. I'll, maybe I'll take some time too, but uh, in two weeks, uh, we will have, oh, we'll have the discussion on inclusion, right? That's the, yes. 
So that should be interesting. Um, that'll be a little bit different for you and I, right? It won't just be strictly technical or even for the listeners. Um, yeah, it will, I don't want to, I don't want to say too much about it outside of it'll, it'll be different. Um, I know like there's been a lot of interesting discussions flowing around about words that we use within the industry um, and how they can be, you know, I, I, they can make people feel unincluded. Right. And how to change that and actually, yeah, be aware of what it is that we're actually saying and the, the you know, the power behind words. So it, it, it should be good. I'm, I'm excited to, to have the discussion and I think it'll be a little bit different for, for all of us. Um, yeah. I think we, 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 it made sense to bring in somebody who actually knew who actually has studied and actually this is their career to mm -hmm. um, talk about diversity inclusion versus, you know, what do we know about that? I mean, honestly, like we're not, we're not professionals in it. So yeah, might as well just bring somebody on that. Uh, and uh, I appreciate Adam Migas who hooked it up for us. Yep. Um, that was really nice. Uh, very appreciative. So big thank you to Adam. Yep. And Laura. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it'll be interesting to, to talk to Laura about it, um, to see what she has to say. I, I like, I don't know, like I, cause we're going back to the whole idea of the things that we've named and we use like commonly across the board. And at times like you don't even think about it. Right. Um, I know, so, man, I've started thinking about all these stupid phrases that I use that have just been like things that uh, um, we all hear and we just repeat and don't yeah. think much about it. Cause it's just a common like phrase and then, uh, or saying, and then, yeah, like sometimes it, they have like nefarious um, connotations in history, but you don't know it because it's such, it's so ingrained in our, so anyways, before, so we don't get it. I'm not even going to go down the road. Yeah. She will let her talk about it. So. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting. Yes. Please join us in a couple of weeks. Um, as always, come join the Slack channel. Come join the conversation. Um, Ken, Ken and I are always on Twitter. DMs are open uh, as well as uh, anywhere else if you've got questions or you want to chat about anything that we've talked about today or in previous episodes. So thanks again for everybody that joined and participated, and we'll catch you all in a couple of weeks. Thank you all. Very much appreciative of it. Thanks.